This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hey, this is episode 105 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Tom Parfit about his new book, High Caucasus, which gets published today on July 20th, 2023. Tom and I have a sober conversation about the 2004 Beslan School massacre, his reporting in Russia, and his 1,000-mile walk across the Caucasus in southern Russia. I also asked Tom about Ukraine and some commonly held misassumptions or ideas about the people of the Caucasus. As ever, links are in the show notes at travelwritingworld.com, where you'll also find more interviews and resources. So now, here is Tom Parfit. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Where in the world do we find you today? I'm actually at home in Heatherset, which is a little village outside Norwich in Norfolk in the east of England. Very good, very good. Um, and you are a long way away from the location of your new book. Uh, your your book is called High Caucasus. And I must say right now that the book kind of grips us in, in the opening pages where you discuss the 2004 Beslan School Massacre and you know your experiences reporting it. And it's hard to believe, actually, that it's been nearly two decades since um, the, the massacre. And I'm sure the details will invariably be fuzzy for some. So if you can, um, perhaps begin by you know telling us a little bit about the Beslan massacre and maybe a bit about your own background. Like, what were you doing in Russia and how did you come to cover the incident? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Well, I had... Uh... I moved to Russia in 2002 after having studied at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London. And I'd also worked a couple of years at a regional newspaper in Britain. And I, I was very keen to become a foreign correspondent and I'd become interested in Eastern Europe, traveling there. And eventually moved to Russia and began to look for work as a correspondent and worked initially as a, an English language editor and then found some work as a, as a correspondent, as a freelancer, and then built that up into contracts with British papers. So by 2004, I'd been in Russia for a couple of years, and I'd been already traveling to the North Caucasus to report on the conflict there, which is the, the, the sort of Islamist insurgency which grew out of the wars of Chechen, for Chechen independence in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So uh, at that time, in the early 2000s, the militants had had to retreat to the hills in, in Chechnya uh, but this insurgency had spread out into neighboring republics, and then the militants were also launching terrorist attacks um, in the region and beyond as well in, in Moscow, devastating ter terrorist attacks in which scores of people, hundreds of people were killed. And in September 2004, about, I can't remember, I think 40 milit militants, certainly dozens of them, uh, Chechens and English mostly, uh, stormed into the neighboring Republic of North Ossetia, which is a mostly Christian republic in the North Caucasus region of southern Russia, and they seized a school there, which um, had about, it was on the first day of the school year, which was a big occasion in Russia. Parents come along to celebrate with their children. So they managed to seize the school with uh, more than 1,100 people inside it, children, uh, their parents, and teachers, and, and then followed 
uh, a very frightening and distressing and violent, in the end, three days in which those uh, hostages were held in the gym of the school, mostly without food or water, and it, it ended in this terrible denouement when uh, there were explosions inside the school. The, the militants had rigged up the school with explosives, mm. and a firefight broke out between the security services and the vigilantes outside and the militants inside, and then a fire broke out on the roof of the gym. And as a result of all those three things, 314 hostages died. Wow. Well, wow. uh, tragedy. I remember seeing uh, that on, on the news uh, way back then, um, although I didn't really, you know, quite understand, you know, the implications of that all or perhaps the, the causes. And you'd mentioned um, some of the conflicts in the Chechnya region. Um, and I was wondering maybe if you can just very briefly just touch upon, you know, perhaps what are some of the motivations for the terrorists to have, have done that? I mean, there's no, I guess, justification for it, but just to understand, you know, what's going on in the region geopolitically might be helpful for the, the context, especially for, for your book. Yeah, of course. Well, so the North Caucasus is this very uh, diverse, ethnically diverse region between the Black Sea and the Caspian in southern Russia on the border with Georgia and Azerbaijan. Mm -hmm. And most of the people there now are Muslims, although there's a Russian population, obviously, as well, an ethnic Russian population, and there are North Ossetians who live there who are a majority Christian. Um, most of those Muslim nations were conquered in the 19th century during the Caucasian War from 1817 to 1864. Uh, but then after that, through the 20th century, there were occasional uprisings, a kind of level of resistance persisted. Several of the North Caucasus nations were deported to Central Asia en masse by Stalin during the Second World War. That was supposedly because they'd sided with the invading Nazis. In fact, only a very small number of them did, but the entire nations were, were punished and sent away and not allowed to come back for 13 years, uh, by which time many of them had lost their homes and so on. Uh, so there's this rather distressing backstory. And then uh, in the 1990s, various ethnic conflicts broke out, and also there were wars for independence in Chechnya. Chechnya wanted to break away and become independent in the 1990s and the early 2000s, there were the First and Second Chechen War, and they kind of mutated into, that was a, a, initially pretty much a secular attempt at um, independence, but they kind of mutated into this region-wide Islamist insurgency, which spread out across the whole region. So there were guerrillas in uh, in woodland camps and in safe houses who would launch attacks on the uh, Russian federal forces and the police and security services and, uh, you know, kill people in terrorist attacks, bombing the metro in Moscow and so on. And at the same time, there was a very brutal kind of war on the, on the part of the security services against these militants and they would indiscriminately uh, arrest and torture people or that people would disappear even if they weren't necessarily involved in the underground, they would be suspected of that because they were going to the wrong type of mosque or something like that. Well, and yeah, it sounds just like a, you know, nightmare scenario on, on both sides. Yeah, that's quite true. The, the, the massacre seems to have had geopolitical ramifications. It, it seems that, you know, that incident 
may have, in some in some cases, led to the tightening of power in Moscow. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, one direct effect was the fact that um, the the Kremlin strengthened control over the regions because it was seen that the regions had uh, failed in the North Caucasus. The regional uh, pro-government leaders there had failed to intercept this or uh, see this terrorist attack coming and and, and do enough to, to stop it. So uh, that was used as a kind of excuse, really, for mm-hmm. um, elections of regional leaders to be phased out and for appointments to be phased in where Putin would directly or the, the, the government would directly appoint leaders in, in the regions. So, you know, there may have been a certain rationale for that, but it was certainly deployed in the strengthening of Putin's power more generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that in, in the United States. I remember the conversation post 9-11 was, you know, the erosion of, you know, certain civil liberties. And, uh, you, you know, it seems like there perhaps could be some sort of parallel there. But yeah, I mean, one one uh, one person that people may have heard of is Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the uh, the leader of Chechnya, the pro-Kremlin leader of Chechnya. And he is a kind of manifestation of that process, really. Um he is someone who was a, a, a former rebel but came over to the Russian side. Um, you know, he, he used very brutal methods to, to stamp out the militants, and in some respects they were quite successful. And in the years after Bislan, gradually the insurgency lost its power. But the result has been uh, that a kind of local Khan has been created who just runs his fiefdom as pretty much as he likes because he was basically given carte blanche to do what he liked to wipe out the militants, and in exchange for doing that, the Kremlin pretty much said, "You can do whatever you like on your own territory." So that they know, and we know about how uh, gay people have been persecuted and killed there. Any kind of opponent can have anything terrible happen to them. We've just seen a very famous Russian reporter, Yelena Malashina, has been uh, beaten very severely down there, and all these things happen in complete impunity because the the Kremlin allows him to do that. Mm-hmm. And the Kremlin can pretend like it doesn't have blood on its hands. That's right. So let's um, jump back into the book. You know, this, this experience, um, you know, Beslan, your reporting of it, you know, seemed to have had some personal aftershocks, right? Um, the nightmares of the woman, as you recount in the book and the trauma, this, this all, you know, compelled you on a quest of healing, uh, of understanding perhaps. And, you know, this led you to walk a thousand miles or so through the Caucasus uh, beginning in the city of Sochi. So I was wondering if you could, you know, set that up for us, tee that up for us and, and tell us about, you know, your walk um, and perhaps, you know, your motivations for, for going on the walk. Sure. Yeah. Well, as you say, yeah, after Bislan, I mean, one always has to remember with these things that, of course, it's the most uh, terrifying, distressing thing is for the people involved, you know, the people who uh, survived the siege or the parents of the people who were killed. Sure. Their suffering is a thousandfold what anything could be for a reporter like me. Nonetheless, you know, as a reporter working in those kind of situations, they can be very traumatic, you know. And um, I didn't have anything as extreme as PTSD or anything like that. But I did for several years after Bislan have a recurring nightmare about uh, something that I saw there, which was a woman outside the hospital in Bislan being told that her child had been killed in the school and collapsing in in grief at that moment. So for years afterwards, I had this uh, uh, nightmare, which was based on that moment, although it was actually kind of decelerated in my dream. 
So it became like a kind of endless purgatory of this woman falling, uh, tumbling through, uh, through the air to the ground. And, you know, that was pretty upsetting and it was very difficult to kind of forget about what I'd seen at Bislan or to, or even to find something which matched the intensity of the emotion of being there. And, you know, I still went back to the Caucasus to carry on reporting and so on. But I started having this feeling that I wanted to see a, some kind of other side of it, you know, uh, uh, something that was more positive, perhaps, or that would kind of help dilute, dilute those memories of Bislan. At the same time, um, I wanted to know more about where that violence had come from. And so in the end, I decided on this walk. I'm someone who'd always loved long distance walking, had been doing it before in uh, other places in Eastern Europe. And I thought, why, why not walk across the uh, North Caucasus? And in a way that could be uh, uh, perhaps as some kind of way of blanching those bad memories from Bislan, seeing some other side of it, but at the same time, simultaneously, and maybe almost in a contradictory way, drilling down and trying to find out what were the deeper roots of the, the violence. And, you know, also I have to say it was just uh, a quest for a sort of adventure as well, really. It was, a, you know, I, uh, I hope to sort of return to the uh, serendipitous travels of my 20s when I used to walk in Eastern Europe and, and, and regain the, those moments. So, yeah, that, so that's what I did. I, wa- I walked from uh, Sochi on the Black Sea all across the northern flanks of the Greater Caucasus Mountains, so entirely inside Russia, and through all those republics uh, which make up the Russian North Caucasus. So, um, Karachay Balkaria, uh, sorry, Karachay Cherkessia, Kabardina Balkaria. Uh, north of Setia, Ingushetia, Chechnya, Dagestan, um, many of them where there was still at the time this uh, insurgency going on, this Islamist insurgency. And along the way, I also I took a side trip into Abkhazia and also into South Ossetia. So those are the two regions which are breakaway regions of Georgia, but which have strong ties with the North Caucasus just across the mountains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in your book, you write, I'm, I'm going to quote a passage here. In, in your book, you write, occasionally I look back on your walk and think you were just enjoying a long holiday. There's truth in that, of course. Not everyone can allow themselves a summer off and a few would not benefit from doing so. Another truth is that walking heals. The exhilaration that I was now experiencing did not mean that the evil had gone away. It served, though, as a kind of affirmation that another Caucasus existed. And so we, we, we spoke about kind of the Beslan massacre and that impact on you. But, um, you know, I was just thinking like generally, you know, what images, what images of the Caucasus did you, you have prior to the walk? Um, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, like the Cossacks and, you know, there's this image that comes to my mind. I, I don't know why, but I have this image of like the Cossacks as this kind of, you know, extremely violent. Perhaps it was from, you know, the Battleship Potemkin <laughs> film, uh, you know, the staircase scene. Um, but I have this like kind of image of the caucus uh, of the Cossacks, you know, and I was like, what images did you have, you know, pri- of, of the region of, of the people prior to the walk and like, what insights um, did you hope to, to, to gain from it? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I guess like you, I had, uh, you know, some of those images which were perhaps quite romantic or or, or a little bit orientalist um, about sort of uh, noble savages mm-hmm. and, and people in, uh, you know, dropping to their haunches to do Cossack dances right. <laughs> or uh, kind of Chechen braves on their horses and so on. You know, I did have some of those images too, I guess. 
but you know, also I had uh, the, the more brutal, brutal kind of modern ones that I'd experienced as a reporter. So going going there to visit Chechen families living in tent camps in uh, winter, the refugees from the conflict who are living in neighbouring Ingushetia, who are living in these canvas tents which were fringed with icicles in this sort of field of petrified mud. Um, and you and and you know the aftermath of uh, terrorist bombings in Moscow, where I you know saw people who'd been killed and uh, and so on. So yeah, a mixture of those um, very distressing images and um, something altogether altogether different and 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 uh, uh, romantic and probably rather simplified, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned it several times uh, throughout the book this. Uh I forget how you called it, but it, it was like this kidnap narrative or the kidnap theme um, in st- stereotypical depictions of the people in the region. That's very true. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is about um, a sort of Russian prism on the Caucasus and how it was viewed in mm-hmm. in, in Moscow. You know, the, the Caucasian War in the uh, 1800s was accompanied by kind of burgeoning Russian literature people like Pushkin and Lermontov and Tolstoy. And there was a quite wide variety of that stuff. Some of it was quite sort of lurid orientalia about dusky maidens and, and people on charges. Um, some of it was a bit more ambivalent. Lermontov was certainly ambivalent. And, you know, in the poem, he described a battle that he um, take, took part in himself and, and, and both sides, you know, the Chechens and the Russian soldiers dying in this kind of beastly manner with the blood filling the river where they were. And, and then you come to Tolstoy, who was really a kind of an anti-war writer who wrote very movingly about um, how people suffered there, you know, the burning of villages and, and so on. And he managed to really see things from the, from the Caucasus people's viewpoint. There's a, there's a museum to uh, Tolstoy in Chechnya. He's very admired there for doing that. Um, I'm slightly lost the thread here, I think. But um, yeah, I mean that—that's very much how it's seen, and then certainly that is there is that uh, prisoner trope as well. So various stories by those nineteenth-century uh, writers mm. uh, were were about people being captured or held captive, um, and there's a sort of there's always a, a kind of puzzlement in the Russian view of the Caucasus. On the one hand, the sort of uh, a fear about them, uh, uh, a suspicion that these people are going to do you over or stick a knife in you, but at the same time, a kind of admiration, you know, about how they're these noble savages. They're very brave and dashing. Uh, the Cossacks wore clothes, which were modeled on, on, uh, Highlanders clothes, you know, and they, and they, they, they modeled their weapons on theirs as well. So this is this very interesting kind of push and pull relationship between, uh, Russia and the people of the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And did your personal journey, um, not to spoil too much from the book, but um, um, did your did your journey, you know, help challenge those assumptions that you perhaps incorrectly held, or how, how did you know the 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 walk challenge your preconceived notions? Yeah, I think it. I think it did. I mean, in in the sense that uh, some of the you know, it, it, it just gave a, a, a much greater spectrum of color to what I knew, you know, and shade and light. Um, I met some very contradictory characters. Um, you know, I met a, 
a Russian Orthodox priest who was a fan of the British pop group E17 and, and, and of Stalin as well, you know, Stalin who had thousands mm-hmm. of priests murdered. Um, it, it's interesting to meet these people who don't fit your pigeonholed conceptions. And also, I think I just sort of managed to move beyond those stereotypes and, and, and my own kind of uh, feeling, perhaps you could call it distress about people in the Caucasus always appearing to be victims of these terrible things being blown up and shot and uh, kidnapped and tortured. And I found that there were people there who were living and surviving. And, and, you know, it ended up for me being a story very much about resilience as well as about terrible things that have happened in the past, the shadow of history and what's happening now. You know, there was another side to it that I saw much more of. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time hanging around with shepherds in the mountains um, who are these incredibly admirable people living these kind of Spartan lifestyles up in the mountains with a with a rifle and a um, a little tent and seeing off the wolves and looking after their sheep. That was all very inspiring, you know, and positive. So, um, and on top of that, you have the incredible mm-hmm. landscape, you know. So, uh, you know, um, you mentioned that thing earlier I was saying about, no, you know, there are a few people who wouldn't benefit from a good holiday. Maybe it was just that. But in a way, it did, you know, the walking did have this kind of restorative power, you know, because um, you're out there in, in the great, in nature, enormous peaks, glaciers, passes, you know, a wonderful sunlight, heat. Uh, you're kind of getting baked there as if you're going do lally like some lizard sitting on a rock. <laughs> and all of that comes together to, um, you know, that did have a kind of healing force, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you, you d- just mentioned uh, what's happening now, and perhaps you meant that in a different context, but what immediately jumped to my mind was what's happening now in Ukraine. Yeah. And um, I know your book isn't about Ukraine um, and its invasion by Russia, but you know you, you, you kind of note this in the book um, that um, you know the, the book may cast some light onto the situation in, in Ukraine and um, as someone who was living and working in Moscow until you were forced to leave following Ukraine's invasion by Moscow and, and by Russia in 2022, um, like what what parallels do you see? Like what insights do you think um, can be gleaned from um, your experiences in, 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 in Russia and reporting on, you know, the North Caucasus and what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah. That's a very good question. I mean, obviously, the, the, the two cases are quite different in many ways. You right. know, when you look at what happened in uh, Chechnya in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, there was a very brutal kind of Russian invasion of Chechnya, effectively, and many civilians were killed and so on. But it, that was actually in response to something very real, a threat to territorial integrity of the country, because, you know, Chechnya is, is one region of of Russia, it had been so for a long time already, and you know General Dudayev was trying to break it away and make it into an independent state. So there was a certain rationale behind Russia trying to reclaim or hold on to part of its uh, territory, even if the way it was done was uh, so brutal. Um, you know, if you look at Ukraine, that's a very different story. Ukraine had been a sovereign country for thirty odd years, and then Russia invaded it. Um, that, that that's something really quite different, isn't it? But there's certainly things which are in common and, and which say to us that uh, perhaps sadly we shouldn't be so shocked about how the Russian war has been waged in Ukraine because uh, what does unite the 
conflicts in the Caucasus and Ukraine is this just nauseating readiness on the part of Moscow to slaughter civilians mm -hmm. and to do terrible things to them. Um, you know, unfortunately, we probably shouldn't be so surprised about that happening in Ukraine if we remember what has happened in the past in Chechnya. Mm -hmm. Do you have any projections as to what may unfold in Ukraine based on your, your reporting and your experience in Russia? I, I, I have to say that I'm not sure that I do. It's such a fool's game trying to predict what will happen in Russia. And repeatedly over the years, in the, especially in the post-Soviet period, we journalists and, uh, and uh, you know, political scientists and people have been proved wrong in mm -hmm. our predictions. I was one of the people who thought there wouldn't be a war in Ukraine. Many of us just couldn't imagine that uh, Putin would entertain such a mad enterprise. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess I think that it probably won't end anytime soon, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite pessimistic about the future in Russia in general, if I'm honest. Um, I'm not convinced that if Putin is removed or goes that someone better will come along after him necessarily. It might be someone even worse. Uh, having said that, and that's one thing that sprang from my walk, I do have a much deeper feeling that uh, Russia one day will be another place. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we shouldn't cancel Russia or Russians. I mean, we can cancel Putin. I'm very happy with that idea. But I think we need to uh, preserve some belief in the fact that there is goodness residing in Russia and that there are um, people in Russia who will one day make it another place. Even if some of them have had to go abroad for a while, although many haven't, many brave people are left in the country. You have to think about people like um, Eliak Arlov from uh, the Memorial Organization or Yelena Malashina, a terrifyingly brave journalist who we've recently seen beaten in Chechnya. Um, people are still living, trying to, um, you know, do, do something good. And I, I believe that there are those kind of wellsprings of goodness, which will one, one day in some way manifest themselves and Russia will be a different place. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope so sooner rather than, uh, than later. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, hi, Caucasus. I think this book is coming out. Uh, we're, we're talking on Monday, July 17. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this book comes out this week in a few days on the 20th. That's right, Gemma. Yeah, thank, and thank you very much. Yes, it does. It comes out in the UK on uh, July the 20th. Unfortunately, don't have an American publisher yet, but that may yet happen. Uh, but uh, the book can obviously be ordered from the UK and delivered to the States if people are interested. Thanks to the magic of the internet, if someone wants to order it from the United States, it might have to wait a little, a couple of weeks, but uh, definitely can order it uh, through the internet for sure. Thank you. Thank you again, Tom, for, for speaking with me today. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.